to care for you in those trials, they always leave you kind of hanging, right? Because they tell you how you should feel when they've never had to walk a mile in your shoes. I like to tell young pastors, whatever you do, don't ever tell someone I know how you feel. And even if you experience the exact same thing that they experience, you're still not them. You don't know all the details. But a good pastor, a good servant of the Lord isn't trying to fix somebody, trying to point them to the one person who can fix everybody. The resurrection transforms suffering. As we'll see today, the church in Smyrna was intimately familiar with suffering. They lived in poverty, were persecuted for their faith, yet they persevered because of Jesus. In our study today, Pastor Daniel will tell us what Scripture says about suffering and why we shouldn't be afraid of it. We can be comforted in knowing that our brokenness will be carried by a Savior that is saving us from this life. He experienced all our suffering and can speak to us about it. All the time, and this is a good question, people say, why do bad things happen to good people? It's not a bad question at all. Now, I know those of you who've been around the Bible for a while would say, well, Jesus said there's no one good No, not one. And so the question is, why do good things happen to bad people? We're going to table that. It's not a bad question. And if we're honest, one of the main reasons people do not believe in Jesus, do not believe in God, is because of the issue of suffering. And I'm just quite sure in a, in a room this size, whether here, in our sanctuary, in our, in our chapel venue, where there's a whole crew of you that is there, whether you're listening online or you're on our live stream right now or you're picking this up on the internet, a lot of people say, well, if there is a God, then why do bad things happen? And I think that's a really great question. It's a really great question. And people have been trying to answer that question as long as humanity has existed because suffering has always been part of the human system since the fall of Adam and Eve. Since the very first two people, suffering has been part of the system. And in every generation, people are trying to answer the question. And I think it's a great question. If you fast forward to the height of modernism with the philosophy of a man named Friedrich Nietzsche, he wasn't all that popular when he was saying the things he was saying, but now fast forward it about 100 years after Nietzsche, and he's very popular. Whereas most of us, whether we realize it or not, have been influenced by the way Nietzsche viewed the world. And one of the things he said about religion was that religion, it was all a power play. It's all about power. And that in every single area of life, the reason people do what they do, it's a will to power, which I want to have power over a situation, right? And so because of that, everything is wrong. Nothing is okay. And what's interesting is Nietzsche... People say those type of things, except they never actually dial back and say, well, my position is also a will to power. That's the irony of philosophy. It's great to have a bold statement, but it takes a little bit of self-reflection to actually turn your own philosophy back on yourself. And Nietzsche never said, my own position is a will to power as well. I'm trying to have power over your position. 
But we'll, again, we'll leave that on the side. as We'll leave Nietzsche off the hook right now. But when you think about the idea of will to power, Nietzsche's not necessarily wrong. Because given your circumstances, by God's design, he wants you to have power over the suffering in your life. The Christian message is actually that God transforms suffering into something exceedingly glorious, which is a will to power. The message of the gospel takes suffering and, he, and transforms it into something greater, something more profound. And I think this is going to be a very important message for many of us here today because we all are feeling the effects of the fall of humanity as it relates to our own lives. So I want you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're doing this series called Case Study on the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And today, we're going to be taking the second letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna, where we'll be picking up in verse 8 this morning. Now, we started discussing how these seven letters to seven churches, how they relate. Remember, these were seven literal churches. They were seven local churches that were on a little gentle arch trade route or mail delivery route in what is modern day Turkey. So these were literal churches and Jesus wants to speak to these seven churches. And so he has letters for them. So it'd be like if, if Jesus wanted to write a letter to the churches in Vancouver, Washington in 2012, might say to the church at Crossroads, I say this. To the church at Living Hope, I say this. To the church at Calvary Downtown, I say this. To the church at Glenwood, I say this. These were literal local churches. But each one of these letters contain a phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice that. Although the letter is addressed to a specific local body, it also has a greater application to all seven of the churches, and I would say to all of God's people throughout all of time until Jesus returns. So there is a very personal application of these local letters to local people. So these are the two ways we're looking. I also made the point that for those of you who have spent a lot of time around the Bible, some scholars like to say that there's a prophetic application of these where these seven letters gives a what would be a prophetic view of church history from the apostolic age till the present age. And I also made the point that I don't prefer that interpretive view because everybody always sees themselves as the best churches and they see the churches that they don't like as the worst churches and they fill in the blanks in the middle. So I don't like arbitrary interpretation, okay? Because if you read church history over its span, especially how people commentate, everybody is the church of Philadelphia, which is the best church. And whoever their enemy church is, that's always the church in Laodicea. And so um, on and on it goes. So, but we're going to look at this. What does it mean locally for the individual church? And what does it mean for us today? And that's why each one of these messages has been given the title diagnosis and then a phrase. So last week, the church in Ephesus was, the diagnosis was just to add love. Because the church in Ephesus was doing great, except they had left their first love. And Jesus wanted them back. Today, for the church in Smyrna, it's going to be the diagnosis is just hang on. Because we're going to see that the church in Smyrna was suffering with intense persecution. They were suffering in a very real way. Now, if you recall from last week, we're breaking 
all of these letters down just the way they're designed with, there's a five-fold way that Jesus is talking. First, he has the revelation, right? Jesus begins every letter to this church, and this is who I am. And that's important because first and foremost, Jesus wants to form himself in your life. Discipleship is quite simply the life Jesus would live if he were you in your circumstances. Everything going on in your life is an opportunity for Jesus to reveal himself in and through your life. We are meant to be his reflections in the world. So first it begins with the revelation. Then Jesus gets into the good. These are the things the church is doing well. This is their excelling points. But Jesus being an honest and open and even-keeled assessor of the details for everyone or almost everyone, there is the bad. This is the growing edges. And I like that about Jesus because Jesus wants to affirm the ways that we're strong and he wants to challenge us on our areas that need growth. One of our core values here at Crossroads, of course, is that we're all in process, right? And the reason we're in process is we all have growing edges. There's not one person here that doesn't have a growing edge. Now, if you're saying, well, Pastor Daniel, I really don't have a growing edge. That's also your growing edge. So we all have areas that need work, every one of us. And it will be that way until Jesus comes back or he calls us home. Then he challenges. There's the challenge. Based on what's going on, Jesus challenges each person to take the next steps, to simply respond to him. And in each church, given the circumstances and the situation, there is a challenge to take the next step. Each one of our lives, there is a challenge in front of each one of us. Will we take the next step with Jesus given the circumstances of our lives and the issues that we're dealing with, the hurts, the hang-ups, the habits, the people around us and their hurts, hang-ups, and habits? We all have to simply respond to Jesus, and Jesus challenges us to that, and then he makes a promise. He says, look, if you take that step of faith in the challenge I set before you, there's a promise to the overcomer. And the Christian life is a life of overcoming. We live in a fallen world. See, I realize when I say we live in a fallen world, that's biblical for we live in a world that's got brokenness at its core. There's brokenness all around us. The tornadoes in Oklahoma, it's a sign of the brokenness of creation. If you've seen a loved one sick, I have allergies. Adam in the garden never had allergies. I mean, he was in paradise. No allergies, no sneezing, no runny eyes, none of that stuff. I have it. Every time I have a sneezing fit, I'm like, thanks, Adam. <laughs> and then, of course, in my yard, I got all these thistles coming up. My kids call them spiky weeds. And that's Adam's fault, too. And in Genesis chapter 3, it talks about thorns and thistles it's going to give. Now, I know that there's Roundup and all that stuff, too. But the fact that we even have to use Roundup, proof that we live in a broken world. Every time a woman has a child and, and that labor is hard, and it is for all women, that's proof that we live in a world that's broken in some ways. It's still beautiful, but there's a brokenness to it. And each one of our lives experiences that brokenness. And the overcomer is the person who trusts in God to make it through the brokenness, getting better in the process and not bitter by its brokenness. So that's the way each one of these letters lay out. So I want to read to you the second letter. So Revelation chapter 2. If you're brand new to the Bible, the book of Revelation, very last book. So turn to the end. 
Open it up, chapter 2, picking up in verse 8. It says this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So notice where it begins in verse 8 with this revelation. To the angel of the church of Smyrna right Now last week we talked about this word angel. And that word angel could either mean a supernatural angelic messenger who has caretaking over the church. This is where the idea of a guardian angel comes from. The word angelos in the Greek could also mean a human messenger. It, just, it simply means a messenger. Somebody who does the bidding of God. And so in, some interpreters say this is a, a literal angel, one of God's angelic, of the angelic realm. Some say it's the bishop or the pastor, um, someone who's a caretaker by God. I don't know what the answer is, so we'll just say it could be any of those. But Jesus is sharing this to someone who has caretaking authority to share a message with this church. And notice it's the church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was about 35 miles north of Ephesus, which is the church that we saw last week. It's the third largest city in Turkey, and it's modern-day Izmir. So for those of you who've been there, you know where Izmir is. For those of you who like history, Izmir was also the, the birthplace of Homer, the great author. So that's where Smyrna is. It, it had a double harbor, so it was a great commercial city. It was another one of those cities that was called the glory of Asia. It was a cosmopolitan place. There was a lot of trade there. So to this angel of the church in Smyrna, to the church in Smyrna, Jesus says in the middle of verse 8, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, what this teaches us is that the resurrection transforms suffering. The resurrection transforms suffering. Now, think about this. Because of the circumstances, we're going to see all of the suffering that the church in Smyrna was going through. Jesus starts by saying, look, I'm the first and the last who was dead and came back to life. So Jesus begins by saying, I'm the first and the last. Now, if you're in Revelation chapter 2, just look back at Revelation chapter 1. Look at verses 8, verse 17, and verse 18. I'll read each one to you. First, Revelation 1.8. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come. So Alpha and the Omega... Alpha was the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega was the last alphabet. It'd be like us saying the A to the Z. I am the totality of all that there is. The beginning and the end. 
This speaks of the eternality of Jesus, that he is the beginning and the end. Look at verse 17. Do not be afraid, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. You see how Jesus keeps putting these things together, saying, I'm the first and the last. last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A to Z. He's saying, look, I'm sovereign God. I was there before time began, and I'm going to be there after all of this is done. And not only that, but I'm the one who died and rose again. And that is what I would call, if you're a theologian, high Christology. Which means when Jesus starts talking in these type of language, we should be like, wow, this man who we read about in the Gospels, Jesus of Nazareth, he was fully God. He was at the beginning and at the end. If there ever is going to be either one, Jesus is there. And not only that, he became a man and he died and he rose again. And the resurrection transformed suffering. And I'm going to be weaving this all the way through the message because for, for those of us in here who are suffering, and if you're not suffering right now, praise God, but there will come a day when each one of us is going to experience brokenness and pain. Remember Pastor Levi said it a few weeks ago, the best time to train for a trial is before it happens. The best time to train for a marathon is not when the starting gun goes off, but way before. And we need to remember that the way Jesus transforms persecution and suffering is through the reality that this life is not all that there is. This might be all that we know, but it's not all that there is. There is an eternal life waiting for each one of us. And Jesus experienced all the suffering of humanity on the cross and conquered that death. And we need to have that long view, that long view. Jesus, the suffering one, and he can speak to those who suffer. If you're in here today and you're struggling, life is hard, your health is failing, your family is failing, things are going wrong, he who is the suffering servant of God, Jesus of Nazareth, knows exactly how you feel. He is the one who can be a great high priest who can speak into your life, not as an outsider, which is what most people do. And that's why when you look to people to care for you in those trials, they always leave you kind of hanging, right? Because they tell you how you should feel when they've never had to walk a mile in your shoes. I like to tell young pastors, whatever you do, don't ever tell someone I know how you feel. That's like being a good pastor one-on-one. Never say I know how you feel because you don't know how they feel. And even if you experience the exact same thing that they experience, you're still not them. You don't know all the details. But a good pastor, a good servant of the Lord isn't trying to fix somebody, trying to point them to the one person who can fix everybody. Our job is to point people to the one person who could say, I know exactly how you feel. You might say, how does Jesus know how I feel? Jesus was never married. On the cross, Jesus experienced the punishment for every single sin that's ever been committed. So no matter how nasty your husband is or how nasty your wife is, the punishment for that transgression, Jesus became intimately acquainted with on the cross. So he knows exactly 
how it feels. And he experienced the effects and the punishment for it. And that's why Jesus is the man. That's why. Because no matter what you go to him with, he knows what it is in a very real and personal and intimate way. And that is why Jesus is unlike anybody else. And that's how the resurrection transforms suffering. Because although that intimate acquainted, that death mark from sin was on Jesus, he rose again. Jesus rose again. That tomb has always been empty after the third day. And so, brother, take, sister, take heart in this. That Jesus conquered the suffering by being risen from the grave. The death impact of your life has been overcome by the resurrection of Jesus. And the church in Smyrna needs to hear this because they are in the midst of a fiery trial. Now, in verse 9, Jesus gets into the commendation, the good things that they're doing. Look at what it says. I know your works. Verse 9. Tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus gives a fourfold commendation. Hey, this is what you're doing good. And what we learn here is that we should never judge a book by its cover. You should never, ever judge a book by its cover. Now, that's a pretty common phrase, isn't it? Never judge a book by its cover. What it means is that you don't necessarily know what's on the inside based on what's on the outside. And the church in Smyrna, it begins, hey, I know your works. Just like the church in Ephesus, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know how you're living. I know what your life entails. But then he says, I know your tribulation. That's a trial. That is a struggle. It's what is going wrong. It makes me think of John 16, 33. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. Notice it doesn't say you might have tribulation. I wish it said might. That's one of those words I'm like, if I could swap that out, Lord, I'd do it in a second. It doesn't say you might have, you will have tribulation. But then he says, be of good cheer, what? I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. He's like, I know your tribulation. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I've never once met a Christian who holds that as a light verse. I mean, it's assured. Yes, and all. And what does all mean? Yep. All who desire to live life godly in Christ Jesus will. What does will mean? Will suffer persecution. So he's saying, look, I know your works. I know your tribulation. Notice, he also says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. In the Greek, the word for poverty is not the word that means nothing extra. It literally means nothing at all. Abject poverty. Jesus is I wanted to thank you so much for listening in at Jesus is Real Radio. I am blessed and humbled that you would take the time and you would grow alongside of this. Now listen, 
the teaching on Christian radio, it's amazing. Praise God for all the teaching. But listen, just receiving God's word is not God's design for you as a disciple. It just didn't say, listen, if you want to be my disciple, I want you to listen to good Christian teaching. Jesus, in effect, said, listen, if you want to be my disciple, I want you to be part of the family of God, the people of God, the church. Now, listen. Believe me, I know church is not easy. There's all sorts of people at church. Sometimes things don't go well. I know for many of you, you probably have church baggage because you got hurt or something went on. But listen, God designed a community of believers, a congregation to be the primary way that we are discipled. And so listen, you need to be involved in a local church. God wants you to be growing with a group of people. You need to be in a church that teaches God's word unashamedly, not one that's going to make excuses. You need to be in a church where the pastor's going to say things that you're not going to like. Why? Because then you go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? You need to be in a church with people who are, aren't exactly like you. Because in church, when iron is sharpening iron and you're getting rubbed a unique way by someone who you wouldn't normally hang out with, God will do something amazing. So listen, if you're in the Portland, Vancouver metro area, come join us here at Crossroads. But wherever you are, find a good church, not only because God wants you to, but because God wants you to be blessed there and God wants to use your gifts as a blessing in the people of God. God bless you.